All right, well, good to see everybody again. Always enjoyable driving up the 101, and it was pretty awesome to see the snow, but now it's uh, the springtime and the green grass and all everything's blooming. It's pretty pretty wonderful time of year, huh? Yeah. Um, we're again going to be looking at First Peter. Last time I was here, I did an introduction overview of First Peter, and we're going to be focusing in really on one verse, um, and the verse is found in First Peter chapter one, verse three. says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His abundant mercy has given us a new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So today I want to talk to you guys about the new birth. If you've got a, a King James Version, it's you've been begotten again to a, a living hope. So this idea of the new birth. Before we start, let's pray. Oh Lord God, we, it is because of your mercy that we have this wonderful gift of the new birth and all the implications, Lord, of salvation and being adopted as your child, Lord. I pray that these truths would ring in our hearts, God, and we would rejoice in them. Pray that you'd give us ears to hear. Humble our hearts, Lord. Fill us with your grace. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Now, First um, Peter, the context here is some Christians that have been greatly suffering and Peter starts here with the idea of the new birth and your your living hope because of the new birth. I want to talk to you guys about a guy named John Rogers for a minute. He's one of the English reformers. He's he's the first of the English reformers to be martyred. Um, during the last four years of Queen Mary's reign, you've heard of Bloody Mary. She got that name, that title for being a murderous lady, Bloody Mary. 288 people were burned at the stake in the last four years of her reign. And these martyrs were outstanding Christian citizens. They were of the noblest kind, the purest kind. They were uh, people who loved the Lord, people that lived at peace with their neighbors. They were churchgoers. They were Christ followers. They had served the Lord. They they weren't criminals. They had committed no crime. They they weren't drunkards or brawlers or rebel rousers of any kind. Um, These were family men women and children. And they were committed to loving God and their church. These were among the most purest people the world had ever known. And yet, why were these the people that suffered most in the world? Why was it? 
The Roman Catholic Church, yeah. The only law that they had broken was they had rejected the, the teaching of the Catholic Church. On this doctrine hinged life or death. If they admitted the doctrine of the Catholic Church, then they were allowed to go free. And if they denied the doctrine of the Catholic Church, then they were burned at the stake. And that doctrine that was in question was the real presence of Christ in the communion. Was Christ's body really there in the bread at communion? Was his, was his blood really present in the wine at communion? When the, when the Catholic priest consecrated the communion elements on the altar, did that become the real body and blood of Jesus Christ? If they admitted this doctrine, then they could go free, and if they denied it, then they were burned at the stake. I want to read to you from a little, a little short uh, excerpt from a essay written by J.C. Ryle. It says this about John Rogers. He was burned in Smithfield on Monday, the 4th of February, 1555. Rogers was a man who in one respect had done more for the cause of Protestantism than any of his fellow sufferers. He assisted Tyndale and, and Coverdale in bringing out a most important version of the English Bible known as the Matthews Bible. Indeed, he was condemned as Rogers' alias Matthews. And this made him a marked man, to be burned at the stake. Rogers was, was bold, thoroughly Protestant, and was able to give a reason for his opinions he silenced his examiners even more than most of the martyrs. But arguments, of course, went for nothing. Woe to the conquered! If he had the scriptures, his enemies had the sword. He was hardly allowed time to dress himself and led on foot near the church of Sepulchre, where he had done the work of a pastor. And by the wayside stood his wife and ten children, one a baby. Bishop Bonner, in diabolic cruelty, refused them permission to see him while he was in prison. He just saw them as he was passing by, but was hardly allowed to stop and then walked on calmly to the stake, repeating the 51st Psalm. An immense crowd lined the street and filled every available spot in Smithfield, up to that day, men could not tell how English reformers would behave in the face of death and could hardly believe that some would actually give their bodies to be burned for their religion. But when they saw John Rogers, the first martyr, walking steadily and unflinchingly into a fiery grave, the enthusiasm of the crowd knew no bounds. They rent the air with with thunderous applause. And even Noelis, the French ambassador, wrote home a description of the scene and said that Rogers went to death as if he was walking into his wedding. By God's grace, great, uh, by God's great mercy, he died within comparative ease. And so the first Marian martyr passed away. 
I, I, re- I read this to you, um, and I, I encourage you guys to read this, the full essay. Um, J.C. Ryle really highlights four of the first English martyrs in particular and talks about the, their experience being burned at the stake. Um, but I believe that John Rogers was begotten again to a living hope. He, he was able to face immeasurable cruelty because of the new birth and this living hope. So I want to talk to you about this living hope. How can you walk through trials with this kind of confidence? How can you walk through trials with this kind of joy? <laughs> Looking up, absolutely. Not looking out, huh? Faithful to God. Praising God regardless of your situation. So this is reasons that you can suffer boldly and even face death of the most cruel kind. Praising God. This is reasons that you can bless God amidst your trials. You have this new birth. Now, um, we're going to read... Verses 1 through 5 of First Peter to kind of give us some context. Picking up at verse 1, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the refugees scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through sanctification by the Spirit, for obedience and sprinkling with the blood of Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace be multiplied. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has given us a new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an incorruptible and undefiled inheritance that does not fade away, kept in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. As Patty so succinctly said, is we're looking up. <laughs> That's how you face these trials, huh? With hope. Well, Peter, he praises God amidst this cruelty. He says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. A persecution had broken out in the early church here, and these Christians were scattered. Men, women, and children were scattered to Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. That's why he says to the refugees scattered to these different regions. And these Christians were scattered, leaving behind their, their family, their friends, their homes, face to live in, in, in foreign lands, couch surfing, leaving it all behind, facing imprisonment, prison and in some cases, some of them faced martyrdom. All were slandered. All had lost their jobs. And they were leaving much behind. And, and Peter says, praise God in the midst of all of this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he reminds 
the persecuted church that they likewise can praise God amidst their trials. That not only can they praise God amidst their trials, but that they ought to praise God amidst their trials. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And why is that? He has begotten us again to a living hope. God has given us this new birth. Uh, Without the new birth, you cannot praise God in trials. You, You will not praise God in trials. You certainly will not praise God in persecution. Without this new birth, we have no spiritual life. What does begotten mean? Begotten means that you went from non-life to life. You didn't exist in the spiritual realm, and now you do exist in the spiritual realm. You've been born of God, living for God with, with new instincts, with new um, hopes, new values, longings for heaven where God dwells, and therefore living for God in the spiritual realm. Begotten, it means that you actually have a new residency. Heaven is your home now, not this earth. And therefore, if things go bad down here on this earth, it's not a huge deal to you. You're not overly disturbed by it. It's, it's like as if you had um, a, a leaky roof in your hotel room. It might be somewhat inconvenient, but you're just going to switch to another room, and it's not putting you out that much, right? That's, that's what it's like, trials on this earth, because we're not, this isn't our home. We're not attached to it. So I want to discuss this new birth. First of all, it's nature. What is the new birth? And when we talk about the nature of something, we're trying to talk about its distinguishing features. What are the distinct Distinctive features of the new birth. For example, if I was going to talk about the nature of a kangaroo, I might say that it has four legs. And that would be true. That To be a kangaroo means to have four legs. But how does that distinguish between a chair or a table or a dog or a lion or something else? Um, where, what is it about being a kangaroo that makes it a kangaroo. What, what are the distinctive features of kangaroo-ness? Well, <laughs> they can leap, right? They can, they can jump very high. Okay, that would be a distinguishing feature of being a kangaroo. Or you might ha- say that the, the girl kangaroos have a pouch for their babies. I don't know if the, do the boys have a pouch. I don't know. But kangaroo-ness, okay? These are the distinctive features. What are, and so I'm asking the question, what are this, the distinctive characteristics and features of this spiritual life, the being born again? First is that it is spiritual life. It's spiritual. You've been, you, you're begotten. It means you're, you're generated. You've been born, born of the Spirit. Formerly you had no spiritual life and now you have spiritual life where you can commune with God. Second, you're, 
uh, intimately connected to God. It indicates that you are, you are one of God's children and that God is your Father. And without this connection, you actually have no part with God or the inheritance. And so first, it's spiritual. Second, you're intimately connected to God. Third, it, it means that you have new longings, you have new instincts, you have a new value system. You have a live, living hope. My, my version of the Bible here in verse 3 says you have a lively hope. So with this new life came longings and values and ambitions that were different than you formerly had. It's a whole new transformation of your person. And it's complete. Notice the past tense. He hath begotten us again. He's begotten in the past tense. It's a completed act with ongoing ramifications. God did this work decisively. And it's sudden and radical. Just think about the analogy of, of birth. What does that indicate? Well, um, birth, it, it's not something that happens gradually. Pregnancy happens gradually, right? But birth, it's, it's instantaneously and it's deliberate, and it's complete. It's, and it's, it's an act of God at a moment of time with ongoing ramifications. And then also it's invincible. When you were born naturally, every successive moment of your life is one step closer to the grave, but not so of this new birth. This new birth is to everlasting life. It's actually a hard concept to grasp. We don't, we don't know things that are eternal in nature. Not very many things are eternal in nature. But this new birth, this new work of God, is, it's invincible and it never ends. John 5.24, Jesus said, He who has my words and believes him who sent me has everlasting life and will not be condemned, but has crossed over from death to life. And that's something that took place in the past, if you've been born again, right? So in other words, that, that, that new birth, it's not something you're waiting to after you, die, after you die and then you're brought to glory. That's salvation. But this new birth is something that begins in this lifetime now. And if it's eternal, by the very nature of being eternal, it means that it, it's unending and it will not be taken away, but it lasts forever. And so, um, if you have this new birth, you can't lose it. It's invincible. It's not like the temporal life that you were given. This is eternal life forever. And seventh, it's known only by its effects. In other words, you can't put this new birth under a microscope and observe it. Right? Or... You, you, you can't go to the hospital and observe this new birth or something. There's no like materialized evidence except there is, uh, there is evidence of it. How do you know that it's there? Well, Peter lists a bunch of um, characteristics of this new birth that indicate that you have it. He talks about your hope. Later, he's going to talk about your faith. 
And then he's going to talk about holiness and obedience. And these are the um, evidences of the new birth within you. And this is your, you could say, your spiritual pulse or the, the EKG that's, that indicates that you actually have this life existing in you. And so those are the, those are the characteristics of this new birth. But where did it come from? We're going to look at its author here. What, it, what is the source of the new birth? Who is the source of, source of your salvation? In other words, did you birth you? In a, in a physical sense, we understand that we really didn't participate in birth. We just, just kind of just happened upon us, right? Isn't that what the analogy teaches us? Um, you know, which one of us decided we wanted to be born? And so this new birth, it's, it's, it's intended to teach us about the origin of salvation. God born you. He decided to save you and to give you that spiritual life. And so it is exclusively the work of God. And that's why he says in verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who, that who referring back to God, according to his abundant mercy, has given us a new birth. So its author is God. And it it indicates that we also didn't cooperate. It wasn't a cooperative effort on our part to bring about this new birth and salvation. This is actually exclusively the work of God. And so where did it come from? It came from God. Third, how necessary is it for our hoping and our longings? How necessary is this begottenness? How necessary is this new birth? Without the new birth, you are dead. It means you are not saved. You have no life and you have no hope. And you will not grow. The Bible says in Ephesians 2, 1, we were dead in our trespasses and sin. And dead literally means dead. You, you, you had no spiritual life. And you could think about it this way. It doesn't really matter how, much, how well you've amended the soil or rototilled the soil and watered and cared for a rock. If you plant a rock in the ground, and it's dead. It just is never going to grow into a tree. It just is what it is. It's just a dead, lifeless object. It has none of the raw material for growth. It's, but, but if you were born again, you're not like a rock. You're actually like an acorn. An acorn has that raw material for growth. It, it actually, if you give it the right nutrition and you, you fill it with water, it, it, instinctually it wants to sprout from the ground and it becomes a mighty oak tree over time, right? That's the principle of the new birth. It actually grows. It has the, the, the stuff of life in it, spiritual life. And so if you've been regenerated, you have that raw material for life. 
And it's necessary that you have God born you again in order for you to have any of these hopes, to have any of this faith, to have any of the growth. All of it is necessary. And so, how necessary is this for our hope? This is, this is fundamental. This is basic. This is essential. It's necessary. And fourth, when does it take place? In the order of salvation, there's kind of this um, historical unfolding of events, but when we speak about the new birth, it is an order of events, but it's more of a logical order. And what I mean by that is actually you could experience the new birth simultaneous to justification and the preaching of the gospel, hearing the word. And that can happen. But the new birth, it, it gives you this new life, this principle of life, and new instincts to seek after God. And it doesn't mean that you immediately understand the gospel or have heard the gospel, but you are, you are desiring the things of God. That's the principle of this new life. And so, being born again, you will hear the gospel and you will believe the gospel automatically. You will become saved because God has done this work of the new birth in your life. It means you have the new you've been given by God this new capacity. Again, look at our verse. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who according to his abundant mercy has given us this new birth. It's according to God's mercy. It begins with God. God must implant this new life in you. He's having mercy upon your soul and giving you this new life giving you a new capacity then to believe with this principle of life in you. Dead things, they, they, they literally don't believe anything. You, you could ask a rock all day long what, what its beliefs are and it, it would have no response because it's not conscious of anything. It can't believe anything. You have been given this spiritual life and therefore you're able to respond to spiritual things. And so your, your birth, though, it was, a, it was a complete and decisive work of God. His decision to, to born you, He decided to show mercy on your dead, stony soul and make you into an acorn and to, and to grow you up into this oak tree God has had mercy on you, and it's a process. This this um, conversion is something that happens immediately. You are justified by the work of Jesus Christ, and not by the things you do. But this this principle of new life it has ongoing ramifications. So now now you are going to grow in grace. You have that principle of life implanted in you. And so you're automatically going to grow. And this is fundamental. Without the new birth, nothing else follows. You, you, you have no hope. You have no inheritance. And you're not going to heaven. You're just a lifeless stone. 
awaiting the wrath of God. So, because of this new life, though, we have these longings for a new world, the heaven, to be with Christ in eternity. God has planted that in us. And, And though you might actually go through troubles in this world, these are fleeting moments. They're, they're temporary and you're just passing through this world onto another. That's the, that's the context of Peter. They've, they've left it all behind, these Christians, but they knew that they were going to another, a better place and they had these instincts to be with God in heaven. Let me see if I can just kind of close this with an, an analogy here. Um, Frogs, they actually, uh, they love ponds. Ponds are their home. And so if you filled in a pond, a frog would be terribly sad about you filling in his pond. But a bird and a bear would really not care too much if you filled in a a frog pond, right? It's kind of indifferent to frog ponds. But But a... if you cut down a willow, that bird's going to be terribly upset. And the frog could, could really care less because he doesn't live in willow trees. And if you built a freeway next to a bear's den, he's going to be terribly upset, but the, neither the bird nor the frog will care too much about the, the, the bear den being upset. Listen, Christians, when, when things go upside down in this world, we're a little bit indifferent to it. This is not our home. By, by nature, we have, we have a new home. We have a new residency, and it's, it's implanted within our hearts. This world is like a frog pond to us. Heaven is our home. And so... That's what this principle of the new birth, it gives us. So if you haven't put your faith in Christ, um, I would urge you to do that very thing. If you haven't put your faith in Christ, um, you can't praise God like this. You can't have this joy amidst suffering. You don't have this hope. You don't have that raw material of spiritual life implanted within you. But if you're here today, perhaps God is actually working in your heart. That, That is a sign that there is spiritual life. You can resist that, but I would encourage you, cry out to God. Say, Lord, I need this salvation. This world is is going to burn one day. It's temporary and it's fleeting. God may be working in your heart and giving you this new birth. But you must confess your sins. Don't resist the work of God. Ask Him for forgiveness. And perhaps God is beginning this regeneration in your heart. So trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. He actually suffered on the cross to pay for sin. You can repent of your sin, call out to God and say, "Um, I have no righteousness of my own, but I trust solely in the provision you made for a sinner such as I 
through the work of Jesus Christ when he bled and died on the cross to forgive sins. And if you do that, you actually have this hope and you can face any trial in this world with longings and hopes in the resurrection to be with God for all eternity. All right, let's pray. Lord God, I just... uh, Lord, my words fail to speak of how glorious this resurrection and the the thought of being with you for eternity is. Lord, I I pray, God, that each of us would be uh, more centered in that truth and understanding of that truth, Lord, that Christ died to forgive sins, but that we might be with you forever in eternity, Lord. Would you increase our longings for heaven Increase our longings to be with you, God, and therefore to be not so troubled in this world, Lord. For we know that troubled times are here, troubled times are coming, Lord, and we need this hope. I pray that you would um, just build up the church here at Laytonville. Thank you for this morning. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.